Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You've reached the House of the Rising Podcast. Before we get into the meat of the show, we always like to start with a little bit of trivia. I'm going to start off today with a quiz about where bands are from, or singers, or songwriters, or musicians, I guess. Uh, I'm going to give you the name of a band, and you just need to tell me with uh, what city are they most known for. Okay. Whether they were formed there, or whatever it may be, and I'll give you extra hints if needed. Okay. Sounds good. All right. The first one is going to be kind of a, just a, a nice softball. The Pixies. They're from Boston. Very good. Lamb Chop. Nashville. Yep, these are all going to be. These should be shouldn't be too hard. I hope. Yola Tango. Um. Hoboken, New Jersey. Yep. Hoboken. Okay, yep, that's exactly right. The Fall. Leeds. Manchester. Manchester. Ah. Okay. Yep. yep. The Black Angels. Oh, aren't they from Austin or somewhere in Texas? Austin, exactly. All right. As Mutantes. Rio de Janeiro. Sao Paulo. Oh, dang. Okay. Built to Spill. Olympia? Boise. <laughs> a tough one. <laughs> dang. Okay. It's the Olympia of Idaho. <laughs> Public Enemy. The Bronx? Long Island. Oh, dang. The Flaming Lips. Oklahoma City. Very good. uh, Oklahoma City, yeah. Yep, yep. Almost changed the wrong answer. (laughs) Jackson 5. They're from Gary, Indiana. Yes. All right. Charlie Parker and a not New York City. I want to know where he kind of came about, uh, where he got famous and everybody started recognizing him. I want to say like Indianapolis or something weird. Kansas City. Okay, okay. I knew it was Midwest. Yep. ZZ Top. It's Texas, I would guess. It's not LaGrange, Texas, is it? It isn't. Oh, that's a good guess, though. It's Houston. Okay. All right. Craftwork. I'm going to say Berlin, but I don't think that's right. Dusseldorf. Oh, man. <laughs> that's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Van, Mo- Van Morrison. Glasgow? Belfast. No, he's... Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, should I, have, should I have waited another second? No, no, no. Glasgow's in Scotland. I realized that was wrong right away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one. Buddy Holly. He is from Lubbock, Texas. Very good. That's it. You yeah. did really well. You got more than half of them. Way more than half. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of fun. All right. It's time for my quiz. My quiz has a uh, great name. What was the name of your quiz, Joe? Questions. <laughs> okay. My quiz is called <laughs> The Band Before Time. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play uh, six clips of bands who had um, a famous member or famous members and would later change their name and become uh, met much, much more famous. So your job is to simply tell me what band they would turn into. If you know the name of the band that I'm playing or the song, I'll give you bonus points. But the main job is to tell me who this band would become. 
Okay. All right, are you ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Track one. Track two. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Yeah. All right. Everybody get down on your face, man. Get ready. Yeah. Okay. Hey, put your hands up. Oh, I don't need that building off. Track three. So uh, we'll play those again at the end of the show, and I'll see how many how many bands you can figure out. All right, and I think that takes care of trivia for now. So now we go into our turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Today's turntable talk is about a single song that has been sung for over a century and is being sung around the world every day. The song is The Crossroads, where Appalachian folk music meets the blues. It might be centuries old. We'll never know, but its tale is always already contemporary, regardless of the year. The song is House of the Rising Sun. When music expeditionists Harry Smith and John and Alan Lomax went out recording field songs, folk songs, prison songs, and the blues, they did so with an interest in preserving what they feared would be soon lost. In doing so, they may have helped speed up the very process they were most concerned about. It was good and bad in nearly equal measure. Their recordings captured a kind of brutality and naivete that became extinct as the country grew smaller and smaller. What they, were do- what they were doing was damming up musical tributaries that had been flowing freely for generations. No longer were those songs able to so easily blend with others and morph into something both new and old at the same time. Oral tradition allowed performers to share songs from one group to another, but allowed for new arrangements, melodies, and words based on that performer's recollection of songs combined with the community they were in. Lines, context, and even gender would move freely between songs, and all that mattered was the message being relayed to the audience. As Bob Dylan once said, a folk song has a thousand faces. 
In the early part of the 20th century, people were starting to move around the country more rapidly, with trains being more abundant. This allowed people an easier escape from something, and usually not a good something. They could start anew. With this relatively new ability to travel, they brought with them stories and songs filled with places of ill repute, people down on their luck, cravenness, and heroism. Varied cultures and lifestyles were able to come together in new ways, creating new sounds and stories. As trains would pass through towns, performers would stop and sing on corners to make money, pick up new songs from local performers, then hop back onto another train headed for yet another town. These songs were like seeds being planted at every station. A listener might only have a chance to hear a song one time, and when they'd want to play it, they'd often need to use bits and pieces from songs they already knew to complete the parts they didn't remember. The oral tradition was made of many people who didn't know how to read or write and worked all day long, relaxing on porches and in taverns at night, regaling friends and family with music. One other thing that mobility added was for people to travel to places they'd never have been able to prior and bring new things back with them when they returned. One popular destination for adventure that was at the end of many lines was New Orleans. The name itself lit up people's minds with various vices, gambling, prostitution, and drinking, chiefly among these. Many people came back with cautionary tales, warning their children to be careful of such things. New Orleans in the early 19th century was a place all its own, a stew of cultures, full of danger, immorality, lawlessness, and glory. When people sang of New Orleans, they were singing warnings of places they shouldn't go, but in incredibly tantalizing ways. These warnings often had the opposite of the intended effect. Musically, there has never been a city quite like New Orleans. It combined every possible sound, song, and history from the world of rounders, ramblers, slaves, gamblers, and outlaws. All the world's music to that point crashed into that port city and traveled from there upstream. By the late 19th century, blue songs were moving from great southern cities like New Orleans into more desolate areas like the Ozarks and the Appalachians because coal jobs were found there. New beginnings could be found there as well for freed slaves and people wanting an escape from the South. In those areas existed a folk tradition, seemingly frozen in time, where English, Irish, and Scottish melodies from centuries earlier lived on as songs with universal appeal. As the songs from the South found new homes with those of the mountains, there arrived tales that combined the best and worst of America and were about and for everyone. In 1937, Alan Lomax went to Middlesboro, Kentucky to record songs in the hopes of finding something worth keeping. It was there that he recorded a 16-year-old girl named Georgia Turner singing her favorite song, Rising Sun Blues. This was the first time that Lomax had ever heard this song, and he knew immediately that it was special. Lomax had become willing to accept any recording that was at least mediocre, and this was far beyond that. The version that Georgia sang became, through Lomax, the foundation for nearly every version we now know, including the one everyone knows by the animals. The song that Georgia sang was from the viewpoint of a woman exploited by the times and warning her younger sister not to fall into the same trap. One of the beauties of this song is that it's also often sung by the, from the point of view of a man, overindulgent and naive, taken for all he has, or sometimes even stricken with a sexually transmitted disease. The specifics are less important than the general message. The risks you take need deliberation and thoughtfulness. Throwing caution to the wind may very well lead you into a trap you can't escape. And most important of all, don't leave home ever. Within a month, Lomax had found and recorded two other versions of the song, but always credited Georgia as the owner. For her part, she said she didn't write it and had no idea where she'd heard it. Unbeknownst to Lomax at the time, there already existed two other recordings of the song. The first was by Clarence Ashley in 1933 on Vocalion Records. Ashley traveled the country as a singer in medicine shows and is mostly known for a song called The Cuckoo Bird, 
which appears on Harry Smith's Anthology of Folk Music. He taught Ray Acuff the song, and Acuff scored a hit with it in 1962. He had also recorded a version in 1938, and both versions are pretty sterilized, while Ashley's is lyrically similar to Turner's, but the sound is different, adding more lament and in a more bluegrass style. The second version is from 1936, and it's by the Callahan Brothers. In their version, the song becomes much darker and more ominous. While both of these versions are as impressive as George's, and maybe even better as they were professional musicians, they were less of an influence on future performances. When sung from a female narrator, the house was generally a brothel. When it was a male narrator, it could have been a brothel, a gambling house, or a prison. This is never made clear by most of the lyrics considered to be canon. Two disciples of Lomax, Vance Randolph and Max Hunter, scoured the Ozarks where they lived, locating even more versions of the song in the late 40s. Some of these versions were obscene, which is something that if Lomax ever came across, he certainly didn't record. Randolph didn't record any of the songs at all, but instead transcribed them. He didn't want to record them as he felt it removed too much of what was most important about the songs, the vitality of the performances. Hunter, however, recorded versions that are now available in the Missouri State University archives and can be heard online. Many of these recordings are by a man named Harrison Burnett, who knew over 400 songs from memory and also worked at the university as a night watchman, so he was very easy to find and record. Hunter had a big advantage over Lomax and Randolph, as he was already a traveling salesman and had built up relationships with many of the people that he eventually recorded. They were often much more willing to perform and with a higher comfort level. He also helped them with chores, and he even brought them stump water on occasion, which is just white lightning or moonshine. He ended up recording over 2,000 songs and over 14 hours of stories, jokes, and proverbs. Hunter recorded some of the more tawdry, if not downright obscene versions, but these weren't released until after his passing in 1999. He tried, but he just couldn't find anyone willing to ever put them out. Had these three not captured these songs, we'd have so much less now. Many of these songs still reverberate through today's music in many ways and forms. Now, when Lomax, after 1937, when he went back to New York City, transcribed Rising Sun and shared it with his friends, Woody Guthrie, Josh White, Lead Belly, and Hallie Wood, who all performed versions of the songs in the 40s. Guthrie's version switched the verses around, making it more of a complete narrative, and it's this order that has become the standard. Using these lyrics in that order, Josh White created the most influential version of the song, which, along with Hallie Woods, made its way to Dave Van Ronk, and then Bob Dylan, and finally to The Animals. After quite a bit of recordings of the song by heavyweights in the 40s, the 50s saw few noteworthy performances. However, the early 60s were pivotal in not only reclamation of the song, but also in basically ending the ability to reinvent the song any further. In 1960, Miriam Makiba transcended the song from distraught warning to a tender plea for release from being bound to old thoughts and ideas. In 1962, Nina Simone captured one of the finest and most important versions by turning it from Makiba's plea into a riotous revolutionary call to arms. Also in 1962, Bob Dylan released a version of the song on his self-titled debut album. His version was based on Dave Van Ronks in both chord progression and lyrics and Van Ronks was based on Hallie Woods, who very few people had even heard. Van Ronk had made his version a staple of his shows, but wasn't able to continue with that once Dylan's version was released, as people assumed he was simply covering Bob Dylan. In 1964, the Animals were going to be opening for Chuck Berry and needed a song that would be worthy and memorable of being allowed to even be on the same stage as Berry. They took Dylan's chord sequence and used a rousing, electrified version with howling Eric Burden vocals as their finale. 
It received an incredible response, and they took that version into the studio and they cut the song in 10 minutes, a single take. After this, Dylan was now unable to play the song as audiences assumed it was just a cover of the animals. This is the version that immediately and forever became canon. It's been virtually static ever since, nearly eliminating any chance of important and personal changes which at one time provided the character depth and charm of the song itself. Communal performances had finally and completely become 45s, and the song had reached its conclusion. There's been a lot of speculation about where and when the song originated, and especially where the rising sun was located, if it even existed at all. The melody of the song can be traced as far back as the 17th century from an English ballad called Lord Barnard and Little Musgrave, also known as Maddie Groves. That song doesn't have any of the same lyrics, however. Where those lyrics came from is far more muddled, most likely due to that same oral tradition of making songs relevant to the performer's cultural context. Clarence Ashley says that he learned the song from his grandfather Enoch. Georgia Turner doesn't know where she heard it, and no one else in Middlesbrough had heard it at all, beyond her singing it. She may have simply heard it on a train that stopped just long enough for someone to sing it while she was passing by. Alan Lomax was in England in the 1960s and found a man named Harry Cox. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's his real name. <laughs> Cox had been singing the song in pubs for 40 years or more and claimed no influence at all from any outside music. He couldn't stand current music. He learned the song as it was passed down from singers before him. His version is body, go figure with his name, and clearly about a bordello. The only lyrics that match are in the final verse, but the melody and message are basically the same. This version is probably older than any American version, with Cox believing it to be from the 18th century, but that can't be confirmed at all. Pubs with the Rising Sun name have existed in England for centuries, so this is certainly one possibility. One origin story often mentioned is that the song is based on a 16th century English ballad called The Unfortunate Rake. There is absolutely no evidence anywhere of this being true, though this comes up in every discussion about the history of the song, it seems. There was a 19th century Orleans Parish women's prison that had a mural with the words Rising Sun written on it, which is why some people think it may be about a prison. The closest thing to real evidence of an origin came in 2005 just months before Hurricane Katrina. An archaeologist uncovered a building that dated back to the 1820s. Based on items found within, it may have very well been a brothel and a bar. One other piece of evidence about this being accepted is a newspaper article from 1820 advertising such a place. One sentence of the ad said, Gentlemen may here rely upon finding attentive servants, which is an extremely forward statement for the time. Another newspaper article about a month after that one spoke of a fire that burned that building down. Evidence of a fire was also found during the dig. No other information has since been mentioned regarding this site as Katrina came through and priorities shifted. As incredibly valuable as the works of Lomax, Smith, Randolph, Hunter, and others have been, they also helped eradicate much of what made this music so important, its transience. Once recorded, these songs lost some of their DNA. Songs that were never meant to be, be captured became so, and soon people, even in those desolate regions, would play records and listen to the radio instead of playing on the front porch and handing down their songs to the next generation. This would have happened anyway, but it would have been a slower demise. I'm certainly glad these songs were recorded, but it's also sort of bittersweet that the act itself of songs flowing and mingling isn't a common practice anymore. Songs are static now for the most part. Even covers, more often than not, sound redundant and useless. This is, 
a very pessimistic view and a gross generalization, but it's also warranted in, in many ways. Music now travels just too easily and is rarely allowed to be about specific communities and shared experiences. Songs now are made to be forgotten and aren't intended to be timeless. The song itself has a European chord sequence, or ballad meter, and it's in a minor key, which is why it sticks in your head so well. Um, it's also why other songs can slip in place of the standard lyrics and not feel out of place. You can substitute Amazing Grace, or Mary Had a Little Lamb, or even Gilligan's Island to do it, and it sounds perfect. The clips I'm going to play now gather many different versions of the song from different decades and different styles. This collection is the complete song with a different version for each of the verses.
played were Clarence Ashley's 1933 version, then there was the Callahan Brothers from 1936, Georgia Turner from 37, and Woody Guthrie from 41. After that, uh, we skip ahead to a version from Nina Simone, a live acoustic version from 1962, and then we jump way ahead to David Allen Coe's Outlaw Country version from 1995. The next three all have the House of the Rising Sun music, but without any of the lyrics. The first is a song called I'm Still Waiting by Sin Sissimu, who was a Cambodian rock star in the late 60s, early 70s, until he was assassinated by the Khmer Rouge. Next is a version of Mary Had a Little Lamb from 1967 by a band called Their Eminence. And the last non-Rising Sun version is 1971's Amazing Grace by private press Christian group Joyful Noise. And then finally, the song ends with Josh White's 1941 rendition. That wraps up this week's Turntable Talk about the history of the House of the Rising Sun. A lot of the research for this was from a book called Chasing the Rising Sun by Ted Anthony, published in 2007. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of funny because there's so many versions of it, and, and they do kind of kind of fall, fall as you get closer to more modern, they all kind of start sounding the same, kind of like what you were talking about. But like, like my favorite version... Which you didn't mention, but I know I know you've you've heard is Waylon Jennings does an amazing version on it on an album called Don't Think Twice, which is one of yeah. our, I think both both of our favorite albums. But um, yeah. the one story I did kind of want to add is probably in the late '90s, I went with my dad to one of those like oldies concerts. The headliner was supposed to be Jerry Lee Lewis, and the Animals are. It was Eric Bird and, and some sort of version of the Animals. They were the the uh, second band down down the bill. So Jerry Lee Lewis got caught up in a storm in uh, Memphis, and so the concert promoters, whoever, basically, I think, paid Eric Burden to go back out and do another half hour set, just because it was just too early to to end the concert. Uh, he'd clearly been drinking by that point, and he gets out and. People are just screaming for House of the Rising Sun because he didn't play it on his first set. And so he starts playing it, and he obviously just hates the song. Like he's cussing, <laughs> like he's making up new lyrics about how he can never stop playing this fucking song. Like it's, he hates it. I mean, he goes through it, but it's it's barely recognizable. So in light of everything what, that the song's about, like kind of this cautionary tale of, of you know, <laughs> going to this, going to this, place it's kind of funny that you know house of the rising sun has captured eric burden too and now he's kind of a slave to the song that's kind of a cautionary tale about watching out for those sorts of things but i thought that was kind of funny anyways uh fascinating song and i i I love these single song journeys the fact that you can kind of trace it back to england too so it has like these it's a mysterious place with mysterious origins but the fact that they kind of rose up in two different countries is very weird to me. It's like, yeah, where was that crossover came, coming? Like, the, yeah. going so far back. 
Right. And then coming into New Orleans where there's all this Creole mix of all this bizarre music coming together and coming back out as something something else like jazz and the blues and then mixing with the Appalachian stuff. It's it's really interesting how that all happened. So it's not quite it's not quite a blues song, it's not quite a folk song. It's kind of got everything, I guess. And then it gets popular and it kills it dead. Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think it's time for us to play some other songs. I am going to start with a uh, first song. This is a song I'm guessing most people have not heard. It is Papos Blues, and the name of the song is El Sur del Ciudad. Okay, again, that was song was called El Sur del Ciudad by a band called Papos Blues. They are not American. You might have gathered that in listening to the song. They are actually from Argentina. And that song is on a record I found called Papos Blues Volume 3, which was on Music Hall in 1973. Papo, who uh, that's the stage name for this guy named Noberto Anibal Nalapalatino. I guess that's how you say it. He's a eight. Argentinian guitarist and singer-songwriter and composer, and he's extremely, extremely popular in Argentina, and he's kind of regarded as one of the best guitar players ever from that region. 
He's played with B.B. King, and B.B. King is saying his praises. Allegedly, Lemmy wanted him for Motorhead at one point to be the guitarist for Motorhead. And he's kind of like this this crazy big rock dude who wrote these these really rocking songs, but nobody ever heard because, you know, they're from Argentina. So this is one of those songs I feel like if classic rock radio could expand out ever and listen to other things, this would be a classic rock hit. You know, it's kind of sounds a little bit like Sabbath. It's it's wailing guitars, but it's it's groovy. It's just a fun song. I don't know a ton about it. Like I said, I found it at a record store, and the cover is fantastic. We always post covers on the on the website. This one's worth looking at. And I kind of looked it up. It is pricier than what I would normally pay for just a record that I'm buying just on a gut feeling. But the, the cover looks so good. It turns out it was is a pretty sound investment because it regularly goes for a couple hundred dollars. But like, it's a really, really just kind of fun classic rock type album. And, you know, I like that sort of stuff, but I don't want to listen to things I've heard a billion times. So it's nice to kind of have, you know, different sort of stuff. So I hope you enjoyed it. My first song is by Reverend Alex Bradford, and it's called Somebody's Calling on Him from his 1966 album, Keep on Praying, released on Chess Records. Somebody's calling on him all the time. Did you know that? There's somebody calling on him all the time. Oh, and if they don't answer when you first call, don't be angry, he won't let you fall. Somebody's calling on him all the time. I believe there's somebody calling on him all the time. Don't you know there's somebody calling on Jesus all the time? Oh, if they don't answer when you first call, don't be angry, he won't let you fall. Somebody's calling on him all the time. I love to call him, yes I do, all the time. I love to call him, yes I do, all the time. But if I need her, I need her, I can call him up if I need her. Oh, somebody calling on him all the time. Now over in France they say, La Seigneur, La Seigneur, a que La Seigneur, La Seigneur, a que They're calling him up, and up, and up, and up. Oh, I like this. And the Spanish say, Santas, Santas, que urabasi. Santas, Santas, que urabasi. They are calling him Anna, Anna, Anna. Somebody's calling. I believe that. I know that. Don't you know that? I believe that. Somebody's calling on him all the time. I said that there is somebody in trouble right now. Can't see their way right now. In a sick room somewhere. 
Somebody. In a prison cell, Jesus. Calling on him. That was Alex Bradford with Somebody's Calling on Him from 1966. The album Keep on Praying hasn't been reissued, but it's worth seeking out if you can find it. Now, Alex Bradford, who on this album is, is called Reverend, is more often known as Professor. Uh, Professor Alex Bradford. He was a popular singer in the 1950s and had a gold record with a song called I'm Too Close to Heaven in 1954. He was a huge influence on Little Richard and Ray Charles in both in the vocal inflections as well as the way with as well as with Richard's flamboyant stage presence. He's often considered the most important figure of the golden age of gospel music, uh, which is post World War II. He was known for his voice, his arrangements, and even his choreography. He was very theater oriented as far as how he put on shows. He also discovered a lot of people. He discovered Sissy Houston. Diane and Dee Dee Warwick, C and the Shells, and, and some others. He toured with and wrote songs for Mahalia Jackson, just huge. One of his songs was even covered by Bob Marley uh, prior to him becoming a Rastafarian. But <laughs> just a really interesting record I just sort of stumbled upon, hadn't heard. Uh, the, the cover is one of the best covers ever. And I, li- I didn't know who he was at all when I got it, but he's, he's great. I just, he's so lively, um, just a lot of fun. My second song is by the Voices of East Harlem with a cover of For What It's Worth.
That was the Voices of East Harlem with, for what it's worth, from their 1970 debut album called Right On Be Free, released on Elektra Records. Elektra has re, uh, reissued this enough times that it shouldn't be too difficult to find, um, and the song obviously is a cover of the Buffalo Springfield song. The band Voices of East Harlem consisted of 20 members aging from 12 to 21. They started in New York City. Uh, they recorded and performed mostly secular music, but sounded like a gospel choir. Uh, they recorded four albums during the early 70s. One of their albums was produced by Donny Hathaway, and another one was produced by Curtis Mayfield and Leroy Hudson. Uh, their last album is probably the one that's most well-known, uh, but this is, I, I just like, this album's great. It has a few different covers. They, they did a lot of covers on the four albums, and they all sound really good to me. I think this version just blows the Buffalo Springfield version away. It's just, it just sounds a little bit more impassioned or something. I don't know. Authentic. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, I've got the final track for us on the show, and so I'm going to go ahead and play it. The song is called Heart by a band called The Remains. with a song called Heart that is the lead-off track off their 1966 epic release, which was self-titled as The Remains. They were really one of the great lost American bands. You know, they were they were right around that era of the of the 
late 60s where garage rock was popular, but it was starting to expand and people were doing more with pop music. Our mutual friend and a friend of the show, Matthew, he um, worked at a, at a store with Joe and I, and he had a like kind of like a punk garage rock radio show on Radio 1190, which was CU Boulder's uh, college radio station. So within the first few weeks of meeting meeting me, we were kind of talking about music, and he made me a tape. So on the side A was The Remains. On side B was uh, The Monks, Black Monk, Monk Time. That was like uh, garage rock life-changing tape. So thank you, Matthew, if you're listening. But um, since then, The Remains have been one of, one of my favorite records. I don't have an original. I have a, a reissue that uh, Sunday's records did in the... 90s uh, Sundays is a great great record label to put uh, puts out a lot of old records. So the remains were uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. They're sometimes called Barry and the Remains. They were led by this guy named per- Barry Tashian, and they never quite got famous nationally, but they were extremely popular in New England. And they're probably most known as they were one of the opening acts on the Beatles' uh, final tour of the U.S. in 1966. From what I've read, the Beatles or the Remains were, were kind of a great live band, kind of wild, and, and they played really loud, and they would jump around on stage, uh, and they were great musicians and disciplined, but they definitely put a lot of energy in the performance. Uh, a lot of people kind of equate it to the Rolling Stones of that era. They, they would play sold-out clubs, and they got so popular that the Beatles kind of, you know, the, whoever is uh, the, the concert promoter for the Beatles when they were doing their tour sought the remains out, and they played these shows. They got real, real popular, and then they broke up before their first record came out. They just couldn't do it. I think the drummer quit, and they just kind of fell apart. The record came out, and with no band to really promote it, it just kind of fell by the wayside. They've re reunited a couple times and, and some, they've have some other demos that have been released, which are pretty good, but, uh, their album is fantastic. They were a great band and it's sad that they, they could have been so much more. They were, they were kind of had good harmonies like the Beatles, but they had a little bit more energy like the stones. And they even had kind of nice harmonies, kind of like, let's say more like the zombies than, than the beach boys, but just, uh, just a great, great band, great garage band that just never made it. All right. I guess we've only got one more uh, piece of business to, t- to attend to, and that is answering the audio quiz. So I'm going to go ahead and play them one more time for you. Remember, your main goal is to tell me what band these bands would become shortly after the song is recorded. Okay, if you can tell me the the original band and the and the original song, that's bonus points. But you got to tell me who they are. So here we go. Track one. Track two. Come on. Come on. Three. What would you have me do? Just turn and walk out on you. And leave you standing there pretending I don't care. When you know as well as I 
Joe, what you got? Okay, number one, I'm guessing, uh, but I think it's The Who. Correct, that is The Who. Oh, really? Yep, good job. Uh, the, the original band was called The High Numbers, and that song is called I'm The Face. Number two is the Lou Reed band, The Primitives, and they would become The Velvet Underground. Yep, and the name of the song was? Ostrich, Do The Ostrich. It's called The Ostrich. It was like a stupid, silly dance parody song about doing The Ostrich. Interesting fact about that is whatever ostrich guitar is, he would later put that he played ostrich guitar on Velvet Underground and Nico. Nobody's quite, I've never seen anybody quite be able to explain it has to do with like a weird tuning where he's kind of like strangling the guitar or something. So (laughs) anyways. Number three, Credence. Yes, that is Credence. That is the Polywogs. I was, yeah, I was going to guess it. Oh, I, oh I'm didn't sorry. Give me a chance. I was actually going to get it wrong. I was going to say gollywogs. That's all I could think of. I, was just, I got close. but Well, it might no. be the gollywogs. I thought it was the polywogs. Anyways, the name of the song is Call It Pretending, and they did turn into Credence Clearwater Revival. Okay. Number four, this is a guess as well, Black Sabbath. That's good. Yes. The original band was called Earth, and the name of the song was The Rebel. But, yep, they okay. would turn into Black Sabbath. I like that you picked voices that are <laughs> that are somewhat unique. I was trying to I was trying to help you out. I don't. <laughs> anyways, go ahead. <laughs> you normally don't do that. No, uh, I don't. Number number five is the Stooges. The original band was, I think it was Iggy and the Iguanas. Is that right? Or that's was, right. Or was it just the, the Iguanas? Iguanas? Yeah. I don't remember. Okay. Yep. Name of the song is. I don't remember the name of the song. Okay. Again and again. Okay. The last one, um, I've the song I've absolutely never heard, um, but based on a hint you gave me about listening to the voice, I'm going to guess that it's U2. It is not, but that's a good guess. Okay. Okay. It is Radiohead. Oh, we have a okay. lot of Radiohead okay. on this show for, we do. for not being giant fans of them. No, but, yeah, exactly. I mean, but they're no, fine. That's, but anyways, yeah. uh, the original band was On a Friday, and that song was called Everybody Knows. You did really, you did really good on that. I tried to not make it impossible with the voices. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, some of our audience, uh, out there was able to pick up a few points there too. Well, that brings us to the, uh, to the end of our show. As I always like to remind you to go ahead and go out, buy some records, go see a show if you can support some artists, just do something for, for music. We love to play music and talk about music, but it's important that we also support the artists and the people that get us the music. And join our Facebook page. We've got a Facebook page that we update a lot. We have a Twitter feed that we're trying to update a lot. Um, Anything you can do as far as leaving reviews on iTunes, that would be a huge help. You can email us at highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. Just let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to research and cover so you don't have to, or any songs that you're interested in hearing that you may not have access to or you want other people to know about. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, some of our, I know a bunch of our friends, uh, have been listening to this and I think some new people have too, but like Jeff said, leaving a review really helps. We need to try to maybe get some other people listening to this, maybe tell a friend who likes listening to music, but hopefully y'all are enjoying it and we're trying to do our best to, to make it the best show for you. Yeah. And we're on, we're actually on Spotify now. Spotify, oh yeah, that's right. iTunes, yeah, Stitcher, uh, I don't even know, Google Play, whatever. Hopefully everything that you're using, you can find us on. Absolutely. And uh, next time, we are going to come back from, from the old, old stuff, and we're going to talk about a modern event. And so that will be interesting. We don't usually talk about things that are happening right now, but should be fun. We will see you guys next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.